How many people have scars on their body? <laughs> right? If you've lived long enough, you, got, you have some sort of scar on your body. And um, when I was in high school, I was with a group of friends, and we were at somebody's house, and they had a, uh, like a doorstop that would keep the door from closing, and it was, it was like a stuffed duck, like a mallard duck. And inside of it was a 15-pound brick. And so we were, thought it was kind of funny to play tricks on people who didn't know how much it actually weighed. So we were like, here, catch. And then somebody thought they were catching like a pillow or a stuffed animal. All of a sudden, boom, they're catching this 15-pound weight. And when I wasn't looking, somebody took that duck and threw it my way. And I went, boom, hit me right on the eye. And immediately, blood just came down like Mike Tyson just socked me in the eye. Boom. Blood came pouring out. So I had to go to the emergency room and get stitched up. And as I was in the emergency room, the guy that was stitching me up, he goes, did you get in a fight or something? I was like, hmm. I said, no, I got hit by a duck. <laughs> and he was like, okay, were you hunting? Like, what happened here? But no, it was funny. Scars are, are proof of healing. And the longer you have a scar, you kind of tend to, to forget what happened. But when you think about it, you look at a scar in your body, oh, that's, that's when this happened or that when, when that happened. Scars tell stories, so to speak. Hope is born through healing. Hope is born out of pain and suffering. And when we go through tests, trials, suffering, and pain, that's where hope truly comes from, when you know the Lord. When, when a, a mom has, has a child, um, you know, and the child is finally born, and she's holding that baby in her arms, she's not thinking about the nine months that it took to get there and all of that and the, the labor pains and the difficulty, but she's thinking of the joy that is now in her arms and, and it, that, that, that out of pain, out of suffering comes hope. Today, we're going to look at a, a story of healing where Jesus healed somebody. And it, it, it begs the question, did Jesus heal everybody that he encountered? He, he didn't, but he healed everybody who asked. So if you search the Gospels, you'll never see Jesus denying healing to anybody. He always healed everyone who asked, which then leads us to the next question here today in 2019. Does he heal everybody? I would say yes and yes. <laughs> we get confused sometimes with the instantaneous, that, that Jesus didn't heal somebody because it didn't happen right in the moment that we prayed. And we can never confuse divine healing or the miracle of healing or his healing process with instantaneously. Now, I've seen instantaneously healings. I've seen it a couple times in my life. Miracles are miracles because they're not the norm. We don't see them just all the time. There, there is a divine sovereignty to God's miracle working power that we have to submit and surrender to. However, we are to seek him. We are to seek him for for healing. We're to pray about everything and bring all of our needs before him. But we got to always remember that healing and miracles are temporary in a sense that if somebody was sick on their deathbed and got, you know, 
divinely healed, miraculously healed, they're still going to face death one day. So why does God do healings? Why are there these signs and wonders? Well, that's what we're tackling in this series that we kicked off on Easter called Signs. And on Easter Sunday, we looked at the sign of all signs, the, the wonder of all wonders, the miracle of all miracles that Jesus rose from the dead. And then last week, uh, Joel talked about the, the story in John chapter 2, the first sign that Jesus turned water into wine at a, at a wedding. And so what we're doing over the next several weeks is looking sequentially at these miracles that happen in the gospel of John. And we're just going to go right in order all the way till chapter 11 is the last one we see in the gospel of John. And so what's the purpose of a sign? What we've been talking about is a sign demonstrates that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus made some outrageous claims like that he was the son of God. I mean, so people were, what? You're the son of God? That's, they, that was blasphemy to the religious leaders. He said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. He said he was the bread of life. Someone who makes claims like that has to back it up. And so Jesus backed those claims up by his miracles and signs that he did. And he was preparing his disciples to understand who he really was so that years later they would be preaching with confidence who Jesus really was. And a sign also points us in the right direction to get to the right destination. It points us in the right direction to get to the right destination. Jesus has a direction and destination for us. We need to follow the signs. And so today we're going to talk about a story of healing. And several of us just got back from Israel. And it's fresh for me being in Israel, being in the land, and, and then reading through the gospel of John. It's like, whoa, okay, been there, been there. I know how far that is, is from, from here. And, and as we're going through these signs, it's kind of fun um, because the first sign happened in Cana, which is a town near the sea of, outside the Sea of Galilee. So when you see in the Bible the region of Galilee or that Jesus was from Galilee, that's the Sea of Galilee, which is a very large lake, but it's, it's a huge lake. And there's all these little towns that are around there. Jesus was from Nazareth, which was a town in, in Galilee as well. So Jesus moves from Cana after that miracle, goes to Jerusalem, goes into the temple, turns over the money changers. Don't turn my father's house into a house of thieves. This is be a house of prayer. You remember that? And it actually says that Jesus did miracles while he was in Jerusalem. The Jews would gather in Jerusalem for festivals, and they were there for Passover during that time. So they would come from all over Israel to go to Jerusalem. And then Jesus did miracles there. And then he talks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 in Jerusalem, tells him, you got to be born again. And then he heads up to Samaria, the hills of Samaria, meets the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, and tells her about him being the Messiah. And then he makes his way back to Cana. Here's where we're going to pick up story this morning. It's uh, John 4, verse, we'll pick it up in verse 43. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. John is warning his readers, just because the Galileans are welcoming him, don't get the wrong idea that he was somehow welcome there. Because if you remember, 
in, in Luke 4, Jesus was reading from the, the scroll of Isaiah and saying that, that the prophecy about the Messiah, that today it was fulfilled in their sight. And he says, surely you'll quote to me, a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown. So it says, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word, key phrase, and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. What I think we gain from this sign is we're going to learn how to go deeper in our faith. Jesus wants each one of us to go deeper in our faith. So let's give a little background to this. Who is this royal official? Who is this guy in verse 43, 45 that we're talking about here? The royal official really means one pertaining to the king. He was not Roman. He was Jewish. So you've got to remember, historically, at this time, the Romans controlled Israel. They were, the Jews were under the tyranny of the, of the Romans. But the Romans would put Jewish people to work for their empire, such as a tax collector. And he would say, they would say, hey, you can go and collect tax, this much taxes for us. Whatever you want to take for yourself, that's up to you. T tax collectors were hated by the Jews. And then these royal officials were kind of like diplomats that would solve problems between the Jews and potential uprising and all of that towards, towards the Romans. And so the importance of that is he was a man of great power and influence and wealth. The Romans would have paid him well. He would have had authority. He would have had the Roman authority. He would have had this influence. But he had a problem. He had a sick child, a problem that his money and that his power couldn't fix. Parents would do anything for their sick children. Any of you that are parents, grandparents, you know you would trade places with your kid when they're sick. It's such a bummer feeling to see your kid not well. I remember when I was probably about five, five and a half years old, I was bat boy for my oldest brother's little league baseball team. And this one particular game, I, w I was uh, came out of the dugout to run to home plate to go grab uh, a bat that had just happened. And a guy was on deck and he's taken up on deck is where you take your warm-up swings. You're practicing for when you're up at bat. And I didn't notice him. And I walked right in his full swing and bam, his 
bat hit me right in the mouth. And uh, I know I'm still this good looking after all that too. I, I get it. Actually, it probably helped. But um, he, uh, when it when it hit hit me, it uh, my I took my hands and I went like this. But what had happened is it split my lip. And it knocked two teeth out and turned one of my little baby teeth black so that it died. And it eventually fell out as well. And I had 60 stitches in in and through my lip, a little five-and-a-half-year-old. I would talk like this and eat my milkshakes and, Mom, can you get me something? And we we would always joke around about that. But I remember my mom saying how helpless she felt when she pulled back my hands and saw my face and thought, if that was an inch higher, it would have hit me in the nose. I probably would have died. I could have had brain damage. She didn't know. And she just said that was such a helpless feeling. I was kind of in shock. And so I wasn't really saying much. Parents will do anything for a sick child. We've got to put ourselves in the, the shoes of this guy who's coming to Jesus. He had obviously seen Jesus maybe do miracle in Cana or heard about it or was in Jerusalem himself. So let's move to the next couple verses, verse 46, 47. There were two mistakes in his thinking. There were two mistakes in his thinking that we have to apply to ourselves. First of all, he thought that location was a problem for Jesus. He didn't know Jesus could do a long-distance healing, right? He, didn't, he thought, I got to go to him, grab him, make him come back to Capernaum. So he came from Capernaum, those that have been in Israel, it's about a 15-mile walk or distance between Capernaum and Canaan. So he went a pretty good distance on foot there, thought he was going to bring Jesus back to heal him. What he did wrong here is he assumed limitations on Jesus. He put limitations that somehow location was going to be a problem for, for Jesus. And as I was praying through this for all of us, Where do you and I put limitations on Jesus? Where do I put limitations on what he can and can't do based upon my limited amount of faith sometimes, my limited amount of knowledge? We put these limitations on him that maybe we need to think through and pray through. Secondly, mistake in his thinking is he assumed that time was a problem. He assumed that time was a problem for Jesus and his situation as well. You got to come now, and come with me and come now, otherwise it's over. And I get that, right? But I was thinking about um, those of you that are familiar with the Gospels, there's, there's another story in the Gospel of Luke about the centurion soldier, the Roman centurion. He was a leader over several soldiers and would have been a leader in the military And he had a servant that was also sick. And he comes and finds Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, somebody I love dearly is sick. And uh, Jesus begins to kind of walk with him to go where he thought his, you know, this servant would have been. And the guy says, no, no, you don't need to come with me. He goes, I'm a man under authority. I know I say do this or that. And people do it without me even having to see it. And he said, I know you have the authority to do this. Jesus kind of stepped back like, wow, I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel. You, a Roman soldier, have this kind of faith. And he healed him. And Jesus praised his faith. When you compare these two stories, the, the royal official was Jewish. And yet he didn't understand the same things that this 
Roman soldier understood. He, he, the Roman centurion knew that time and, time and uh, location weren't a problem for Jesus, wasn't a limitation for him. Move to verse 48 and 49. Jesus, he, he says to him when he says, can you come heal my son? He says, you people, unless you people. I don't know if I'd want to be on the end of that. Unless you people. Jesus was blunt and stern. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Now, the you there was plural. He didn't just single this guy out. But the you was plural for the Galileans who had seen these miracles that Jesus was doing. But it begs the question, why was Jesus so blunt? Why was he so stern? You ever read the words of Jesus and think, ooh, man, that was just not playing around there. He was blunt and he was stern. Jesus is challenging this. He's challenging the I'll believe it when I see it philosophy of the world. I'll believe it when I see it. I know for me, when I became a a Christian, when God was drawing me, um, late October 1992, I had been running from God uh, most of the last five, six years of my life in that season, and he was drawing me back. And I remember having this time of, of, of talking with, with the Lord, and I, I remember saying, if, if I give my life to you, if I give you the keys to my life, how do I know it's all going to work out? How do I know this is real? You ever been there? You're bargaining with the Lord? Yeah, Lord, I'll do that, but could you show me that everything's going to be okay? Can you show me that I'm not going to get hurt or disappointed, or if I take this step of faith that you're going to, you know, we fill in the blank. We want him to show us the end result, and it doesn't work like that, right? You've experienced, I'm the only one, you've experienced that. It's, that's the norm. And I remember sitting there that day, and the Lord prompted my heart. He said, believe, and I'll show you the way. I'm, I'm not, I mean, I heard that as plain as day. Believe, and I'll show you the way. Don't we want him to always show the end instead? <laughs> but he says, believe. And that's what was going on here. That we, he's challenging this, I'll believe it when I see it, rather than I'm going to believe and follow you no matter what. The other reason Jesus was stern and blunt was Jesus' main concern is to deepen people's faith in him. Jesus isn't always concerned with our feelings. <laughs> Let's be honest. He knows how to speak the truth and love like nobody else. And he's not worried about being politically correct. He wants to deepen our faith. His goal for us is not necessarily our happiness, but our holiness. And the more we become whole and holy in him, the more happy we truly will be anyway. Jesus always has eternity in mind. We tend to err on the temporal. We tend to look at life from this amount of years that we get in this life, and we don't think enough about eternity. And Jesus wants a flip to happen in our thinking there. And then the reason he was blunt and stern was there was a physical problem and a faith problem that he wanted to take care of. Not just the physical problem, but this guy's faith problem. He could have let this guy go home still spiritually weak, having weak faith, being spiritually sick. But he was talked direct to him so that this guy would grow. So I think this, it transitions here this morning in looking at, at the word 
to where does this apply to you and I? And I think there's different levels of faith. There's different levels of faith. And the levels of faith in this story forces us to evaluate what's the basis and object of each one of our faith. Say we have faith. If we say we're trusting in Jesus, what's the basis and object of that faith? You know, the word sign appears six times just in between chapter 2 and chapter 4 of John. There's something he wants us to understand. The first level of faith I would call demanding faith. Demanding faith. Do a miracle, Jesus. Do a miracle. And that's what the Galileans were doing here. The Galileans welcomed Jesus based on his signs, not on faith. They welcomed him, but it wasn't from a basis of faith. They wanted him to be another Las Vegas magician. And, and, ooh, look at that. Ah, ooh, you know, it wasn't based on faith. It was based on, on how they wanted this story to work out for them, how they wanted Jesus to work for them. Thankfully, God meets us where we're at. Are you grateful for that? He meets us where we're at, not even in my little immaturity. He'll meet us there, right? And he'll help us, and he grows us that way. So I think the important part is when we demand a miracle of Jesus, that's a very shallow level of faith. I remember years ago listening to a call-in talk show that a Bible teacher would take, people would call in and ask him questions. One time this guy called in, he said, I'm an atheist, there's no way I believe in God, I believe in science, etc., and if I can't touch it, etc., then it's, it's not real, if you can't base it on science. He goes, but I'm holding in my hand a match, and if... God will light this match supernaturally right now, then I'll believe. He waited a long time. Because we don't put God to the test like that. And you know, could God do that? Of course he can. But that guy was demanding something of God without coming to God in the, the, way, the way Jesus prescribes for us to come. So here's a couple good questions. Number one, do you believe in miracles? I do. Our God has all the power in the world to do whatever he wants. Here's the deeper question. Will you and I believe without miracles? Will we believe when we pray and ask God for something and it doesn't go the way we wanted it to go? There's not an instant healing. We pray for somebody's healing and they, they still die. They're still sick. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told about People in the past that God had used to use, do mighty miracles, mighty things, and they did it by faith, and it's, it's an awesome chapter about the heroes of the faith. But what we often forget about is the second half of that chapter, or the last quarter of that chapter, is about people who prayed for things and never saw the result. They were actually persecuted, prophets were persecuted, etc. And it says, but they believed in spite of not seeing the answers to their prayers. They had the grace to persevere. Today, if you're, you're struggling with something and you're asking God to heal or to do something, guess what? Also ask for the grace to persevere and leave it in his hands. Leave it in his hands. Here's a couple quick cautions and concerns regarding signs and wonders. Um, I've been walking with the Lord for 26 years. I've seen kind of 
all shapes and sizes of people who pursue the gifts of the Spirit, signs and wonders. I've seen some very, very wacky stuff. You probably have too. I've also seen people who deny the power of God to be able to do that. And I'll, I'll let you know, as, as a church, at, at Novation Church, we pursue the spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts, we don't believe, you know, died, with, with, died out with the, the disciples, that they're still for today. The book of Acts continues on, and we should pursue those gifts, and we should pursue them and pray and ask God to move. But we also trust his sovereignty. We also trust him and, 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 and trust him in the middle of however we pray and whatever we're asking for, that his perfect will would be done. Here's a couple quick cautions. Seeking signs and wonders can be a substitute for seeking God. I've seen that happen before. People seek the gifts rather than the giver of the gifts. Signs and wonders can take prominence over God's word. Miracles do not guarantee that a person will come to Christ. The Galileans are examples. They saw the miracles, and many of them didn't, didn't come to Christ. Signs and wonders are not necessarily a mark of spiritual maturity. And then signs and wonders can be counterfeited. And I don't know what kind of church maybe everybody's background is. Some come from Pentecostal, some from, from Catholic, some from conservative, some come from no, no church at all. Regardless, we've all seen the extremes. We want to walk in balance. We want to walk in balance to what the Lord has for us. There's a church in Africa that just got exposed to where they were, they had people fake like they were dead, and then they had a service and they rose people from the dead, so to speak, and then they got exposed. They wanted people to give to their ministry, and so they were willing to, to counterfeit it. And then an overt desire for miracles can circumvent true growth, true spiritual growth. Because if God instantaneously always does whatever we want and get us out of our difficulty, we don't grow. James chapter 1 says, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you go through trials and tests of various kind. It's the testing of your faith that produces character, perseverance, etc. All right, the second level is crisis faith. The difference between demanding faith and crisis faith is the only difference is now we need Jesus to do a miracle for us. And today you might be in that spot where you, you, you're calling out, Lord, I'm in a crisis, physical crisis, a relational crisis, financial, whatever it is. Call out to him. Call out to him. In crisis faith, and we all go through it depending upon how you know, whether we've been walking with the Lord for a long time or not. Because pain and affliction lead to desperation. Pain and affliction lead to desperation, which often leads people to God, to a deeper place with God. Um, I've said this before. People usually learn and are transformed by two things, inspiration or desperation. Inspiration is, I read a great book. I heard a great message. I was motivated. And transformation can and does come through that, but the majority of the time it comes through a place of complete desperation, complete desperation in our situation. David said in Psalm 119.71, he said, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. There's four things that we can do with pain. 
And pain comes in all shapes and sizes and various forms, physical, emotional, mental, etc. Four things we can do with pain. We can run from it. We can deny it, try to pretend it doesn't exist. We can numb it with drugs and alcohol and pornography and shopping or whatever activity we think is going to make us deflect that pain away. Or the only proper thing is to embrace it. When you go through pain in life, you embrace it as God's tool to transform you and for you to know him in a deeper way. Adversity is life's greatest teacher. I heard a guy one time share his story, his testimony, and he started out his story with, HIV saved my life. (laughs) HIV saved my life. That sounds a little more like an oxymoron, right? But he went on to share that when he got diagnosed with HIV, it forced him to call out for a savior, to find a savior, to find hope that beyond his sickness and death was their life, eternal life, and he found Jesus. And he said, HIV saved my life. Wow. The next level of faith is depending faith. Depending faith. This guy believed that Jesus could meet his needs. And this this level moves from demanding to depending. Moves from demanding to depending. In this level is when you learn how to pray. It's when you learn how to lay your life in the hands of of Christ. It's marked by prayer, marked by two types of prayer. Persistent prayer, where we continually lay things at his feet. We're depending, Lord, I depend upon you for myself, for my family, for others. I'm depending upon you. And then consistent prayer, where we're daily looking to have that relationship with him connected in a deeper level. Learning to pray out of faith rather than just a formula. Sometimes we, we buy this idea that if I say the right things, if I quote back to God his word, and if I say this, I pray hard enough, loud enough, et cetera, et cetera, that somehow God's got to do what I, I say to do there. And it doesn't work like that. God wants us not to pray out of formula, but out of relationship. And he wants us to be like Jesus in the garden who said, Lord, Father, if this cup can be taken away from me, let's do that. He said, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will to be done. Depending faith says, not my will, but your will be done. And then in verse 50, we move to acting faith or action faith, so to speak. We move to this level when we decide to obey. When we say, no matter what, Lord, I'm going to do what you say to do. Jesus had put this man in a position where he had to do what he asked him to do. The guy came and said, hey, come and heal my, my sick son. And Jesus said, go, he will live. No, 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 Jesus, you got to come. He didn't do that, right? He did what Jesus said to do. He took him at his word. That's what action faith does is we take him at his word. He heard, he believed, and then he obeyed. And then the last level of faith And this is the level of faith that that Jesus wants all of us at, and that's following faith. It's where we follow him no matter what, where we're building our life on him no matter what, that life can throw us all kinds of circumstances and difficulties, but you're with him, and that you're going to follow him no matter what life brings. 
The man had moved from coming to Jesus with his problems to trusting Jesus with all of his life. He moved from needing the power of Jesus to faith in the promise of Jesus, to a faith that followed Jesus. Because it says that he and his whole household believed. It had an impact on him and his whole household. You remember the, the, there's a story in the Gospel of Luke where Peter is out fishing all night long. This is early in the Gospel, and he's just getting to know Jesus. And he's, he's fishing, and he gets skunked. <laughs> he didn't catch a fish. He was a fisherman by trade. And Jesus walks up as he's bringing his boat and nets back in, and he says, go back out and cast your nets. And uh, you got to have the internal conversation that Peter was probably having here, right? He was probably thinking to himself, I'm a fisherman, you're a carpenter, stick to making tables. Go, go make something with wood. But it doesn't say that's what happened. Peter was beginning to know who Jesus was. And when you begin to know who Jesus really is, you'll trust how he works. You'll trust how he works. Even when you're going, what? Cast my nets out. This is the worst time of the day to fish. It says that, that Peter said, because you say so, I will. Because you say so, I will. Can we say that together? Because you say so, I will. One more time. Because you say so, I will. Let's let that be the cry of our heart. Lord, I don't get this. This goes against what my, you know, logic maybe even seemed to be saying sometimes. But when the Lord tells us to do something, because you say so, I will. That's the heart of following faith. And I think the greater miracle than the signs and wonders, and maybe even the point of the signs and wonders was to get the disciples and to get you and I to say, because you say so, I will. Lord, I've seen you turn water into wine. I've seen you heal people. Lord, I've seen you work miracles. And that greater miracle is that we surrender all of our life to Jesus. So what area of your life this morning is not surrendered to Jesus? What part of your life are you not building on the foundation of Christ? Maybe this morning, it's what level of faith are you at? And I think the Lord wants all of us to move from just demanding faith and crisis faith to a depending faith and an action faith and a following faith. What step do you need to take to move in that? But I don't want to also move too quickly from an opportunity that maybe today you need a healing or you know somebody who needs a physical healing, relational healing touch on our lives. Let's stand together and we're going to close praying for these things. If it's you this morning that needs a physical touch from God, I just say put your hand over your heart. If somebody comes to mind that needs a physical healing as well, bring them into your mind. If there's a relationship that needs healing, bring that relationship to your mind. Emotional healing, mental healing.
Lord, you know everything. You know the beginning and the end. You are the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. You know all things. So, Lord, this morning, we want to move away from demanding and just living in crisis to a dependence upon you. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, there's many in this room that need a physical touch from you, Lord. Right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you just pour out the grace of physical healing upon each one, asking that of you this morning. You're the giver of all good things. You're the giver, the healer. You're our hope. Thank you for a physical touch of healing this morning. God, for those in this room that need emotional healing, Lord, you're the healer. Bring that healing. Speak your word of peace. Lord, for those that that are struggling mentally, you've given us the mind of Christ. May they be transformed by the renewing of their mind, by your word and by your truth. And Lord, each one of us, we want to move deeper with you for your glory. In Jesus' name.